My name is Chris Casey and I'm here to teach CO3402, which is object-oriented methods. My email is there. My room number and phone number are also on the board. What I intend to do today is to tell you a bit about the, the course and then to get on and start doing some real teaching. The notes are available on the website and all of you should have access to that website through WebCT. If you don't, when you go into WebCT today, drop me an email and I'll try to, to sort it out. Okay, what we're going to be doing today, apart from the brief introduction to the, the module, is listed there. I'm going to be talking about what software developers are trying to achieve. I'm going to be looking at some alternative approaches to design, some of which you may have come across, some of which you won't. And I'm then going to look at some object-oriented concepts that I'm hoping you will all have come across previously. Right, the course itself, I've broken it down into three topic areas. I shall be looking at object-oriented concepts in general. And I'm hoping that all of you will have had an introduction to these concepts. Words such as methods, properties, inheritance, and polymorphism shouldn't hold any terrors for you. But we will be looking in more detail at how you go about designing a class. We will be looking at concept of design patterns, which isn't essentially object-oriented, but does work very closely with an object-oriented approach. We will be looking at object-oriented libraries, some of which you may have come across. And we'll also be looking at whether or not these concepts can be applied more widely not just to programming. Later on we will look at object-oriented design and analysis, but we'll also be looking at whether the concepts can also apply to user interface design. In terms of programming, I am working on the assumption that you have all had a good introduction to C++, and that I shouldn't need to be teaching you the basics of using objects in C++. I've given you a worksheet that we will be looking at in the practical today, and we'll see whether or not my assumption is justified. But what I'm interested in is how different languages... Um, I'm afraid. <laughs> 
which try to produce better software. Um, we look at, inside a methodology, you can have methods for specification, you can have approaches to design, and so on. Also, the programming language you use is going to make a difference to the various goals I looked at on the previous um, slide. So, for example, we tend not to do an awful lot of work using assembly language. If we used it, we could possibly, not totally convinced that we could, but some people might be able to produce faster, more efficient code. On the other hand, it would be much trickier to develop, so the development life, uh, time would be much longer. The number of errors is likely to be much greater. There is, if you look at the history of programming languages, a movement towards languages that check what the programmer has done much more carefully. So C++ checks things more carefully than C does. Java and C Sharp check things not just at compile time, but also at runtime to try to detect errors that the mistakes that the programmer has made. We, of course, also look at checking and testing. So we have reviews, we have inspections, we have um, test-driven development, where people say, don't start by writing your program, start by writing the test harness, and then write your program to satisfy the tests. Okay, so these are ways in general that people look at achieving the goals from the previous slide. Question that by the end of the module, I'd expect you to be able to answer and justify is whether or not an object-oriented approach can actually help. So I'm setting up, if you like, um, an exam question here, which is something along the lines of You've studied object-oriented methods for a year. Can they help to achieve software development goals? Or why do we use object-oriented methods? Part of the answer will be in terms of whether they help to achieve developers' goals. Okay, we're going to be looking at, at least initially, at the language approach. So we're going to be looking at object-oriented languages, what sort of features of the language in general make it a good language? In other words, one that will help us to develop better programs and to, to develop them faster. Ease of understanding doesn't need any explanation, I hope. <coughs> Expressiveness is important. And that is that when you use the language, the closer it is conceptually to the problem domain that you're tackling, the easier it is to express things that are relevant to that domain, the better it is. So, if you're an accountant, Excel works well as a 
development tool because it is close to the concepts that you're used to using as an accountant. It's, you know, spreadsheets are things that accountants have been using for years before they were computerized. So the problems that you've got, the notation that you use, are closely related. Whereas an accountant trying to work out a balance sheet using assembly language would obviously find life rather difficult. Similarly, using raw C++ for developing, say, graphics software would be difficult. What you do is you add things to the C++, you add in libraries, so that you can deal in terms of concepts like circles and lines. Modularity and information hiding, again, over the past couple of years, you will have seen things about those. Information hiding is about being able to use something without needing to know how it works and using it in a way that doesn't depend upon any particular implementation. The information that's available to you is just what you as the user need to know. And I put user in quotes because over the course I'm going to have trouble with the word user because sometimes it will mean the person sitting down in front of an application and using an application and sometimes it will mean a programmer using a set of tools, using a library or using objects that someone else has written to create a new program. And in this particular case, which sort of user am I talking about? Yeah, here we're talking about the programmer making use perhaps of objects that somebody else has designed and implemented. The way that languages handle exceptional conditions is also something that we are interested in. And in particular, we will be interested in the concept of exceptions and their relationship to object-oriented programming. Just as a matter of interest, can you put up your hand if you have heard of, if you have a good idea of what an exception is? A physical exercise, I hope, for most people. Anyone absolutely not heard of an exception at all? concept of abstract data types. This is something that was um, 
coming into software development around the time I was going through university. Um, but it is an important concept and it feeds into the key ideas of object-oriented programming. And the history is moving from programmers messing around with individual bits in assembly language, not being able to say, well, this is an integer. These are the things that I can do with an integer. But having to say, this is something containing some bits, and I'm going to give instructions to manipulate it, and my instructions will mean that it will behave like an integer. So this is very much programmer's responsibility. Languages like Fortran that came along shortly after did have the idea of a data type. And the purpose of the data type is to simplify things for the programmer and make it easy to discover, or easier to discover, mistakes. It makes it easier for the programmer because if he says, this is a floating point, it will be manipulated as a floating point number. Previously, you'd have to say, well, if this is a floating point number, I'm going to manipulate the, bit, the various bits that make it up in the appropriate way. So that provided some automatic interpretation. The program, you would write it as if it were a floating point number, the computer would automatically treat it as such. But what you didn't have in these languages was the ability to define your own types. So that you couldn't say, right, I'm going to be talking about people in this program. Therefore, I need to keep track of names and ages and things like that. So it makes sense to have something that represents a person. Languages such as Pascal and C introduced that capability. The programmer could define new types built up of existing ones. They also provided much better type checking and greater support for manipulating these different types. What came after that was the abstract data type. When, after using user-defined types for a while, people realized that programmers inherently have fiddly fingers. And if you define a data structure as being made up of uh, let's say a stack being made up of a stack pointer and an array that contains the, the data on the stack, programmers will want to fiddle and they'll directly go in and mess around with something that's in the array because the usual excuse is, ah, well it's more efficient if I do that. And the problem then is, that someone changes the program or they change the representation and the programs that use that code is broken. So languages like Ada 
brought in the idea that you could hide the way that a data type was implemented from the services that it provided. So a stack you might expect to provide push and pop, a list you might expect to provide add and remove, and you could only, if you were using one of these data types, that's all you could use. You couldn't use your secret knowledge of how it was implemented to sneak around the back and, and have a look at something that was stored in an array somewhere, or set the stack pointer to zero, because that was the fastest way of clearing the, the stack. So the concept grew of an abstract data type. A data type where you define its behavior, but not its implementation. And that's good for a number of reasons. It's good for the reasons that I've just spoke about, that it can stop people fiddling with the underlying representation. It also helps because once you've defined the interface to the data type, people can start to write programs that use it, and other people can come up with implementations. And they can work on those in parallel without any interference between them. Languages that support abstract data types provide mechanisms that enforce the information hiding. The next stage that comes after that are classes and objects. Languages like C++, Java, and C Sharp that allow you to define the interface to an object and separately to define its implementation. Just so that I can check, um, somebody who hasn't volunteered the answer to a question yet, what, can anyone give me key concepts in C++ that enforce information hiding? I'm looking for three words. Protected and private are the key words that I hope you've, you've come across, even if briefly before, that can be used to enforce this separation between how you use an object and how it is implemented. Right, so an abstract data type. The idea is that you can define behavior and separately provide an implementation. And there may be several different implementations that will work. So the old-fashioned style of doing things, if you go back to C, for example, you'd be told, what's an integer? Ah, well, it's a 16-bit word that's represented in two's complement or one's complement or, or whatever. What's a person data type that you defined? Ah, well, it consists of a string which makes up the name and an integer that represents the, the age and so on. 
So you are defining things in terms of their implementation. The abstract data type approach says, these are the things that this data type will do for you. <coughs> you don't define how it is implemented. You may define the range of values that it can hold and the operations that you can carry out on it. An important part that people tend to forget when they're talking about abstract data types is also the errors that may be inherent within a data type. Okay, very quickly, and again, I'd prefer to hear from people who haven't spoken yet. Integer. What operations would you expect to be able to carry out on an integer? Addition. Okay, I think you've used up your words. Someone else? Okay, quick, quick. What does it do? Okay. Quickly, what does someone else? What does that do? Anything else that we need to be able to do with integers? Anything else you'd want to do with a, an integer number? Okay, there's obvious things like um, greater than or equals and less than or equals. Um, there's assignment. Interestingly, Almost every year people forget this, and the designers of Pascal, although not with, not with integers, but with another data type that they designed, forgot it as well. It's crucially important when you're um, writing programs. You need support for input and output, because you've got to be able to get these things in. The designers of Pascal, when they designed enumerated data types, forgot that you need to read them in and out and left a, a bit of a mess there. Yep. Sorry? Ah, now. Bit shift. Interesting. Right. Okay. We're talking about integers. What are integers, by the way? Whole numbers. What's that got to do with bit shifts? You can multiply and go from one direction, but you really may get decimals. Yeah. That's true. But that's a, a coincidence of the representation. It's not to do with integers themselves, 
it is because we usually represent integers as um, using bits in a particular way. If you go in one direction, where you'd expect to get the decimals, you've come out with a completely different integer. So if there are alternative ways of representing them, bit shifts may not apply. So when we are designing our data types, we have to think about what the thing really is. Bit shift operators don't belong with integers. If we want to think of something that is a pattern of bits, a sort of small array of little Boolean things that can be true or false, then maybe we ought to be having a data type such as, say, Word, where we would allow bitwise operations on it. So, one of the key things about this abstract data types is how we define the operations that we're going to permit. Some of them are inherent to the data type. They're, they're essential to define what this data type is really about. Others are generally important for any data type. We almost always need to have some way of inputting it and outputting it. Others are generally important for comparing and so on, these logical things. What about these? Right. These are alternative ways of doing things which we could already do, but which are either for convenience, because it is easier to write x plus plus than x equals x plus 1, or possibly for speed. So when we are defining an abstract data type, we need to define the essential operations, then we may think about adding extra ones in for efficiency or for convenience. We need to be careful that we don't add things that don't fit with the concept of what the, the data type is about. If we introduce bit shift and people assume, ah yes, if you bit shift this, it will multiply it by two or whatever, and then the underlying representation changes, we'd be in serious problems. Right, integer we have seen, stack we will be looking at, date is one that you can think about. I forgot something on integers. <coughs> I mentioned that a data type may inherently have exceptions within it, things that can't be avoided. You get errors because programmers make mistakes. You also get errors inherently within a data type. Can anyone think of something to do with integers that will automatically cause an error? Divided by zero. Yeah. 
Divide by zero is unavoidably an error, an exceptional condition within integers. Like mathematically, it is there. You cannot divide by zero. There are also um, something which mathematically isn't necessarily there with integers, but is there within a computing environment, which is to do with overflow. Because there is almost always an upper limit and perhaps a lower limit on the values, the size of values that you can store. All of those, underflow, overflow, divide by zero, are exceptional conditions. And when we're defining our data type, we need to think about how we're going to notify the programmer that one of those exceptions has occurred. And of course, um, in modern object-oriented approach, we usually use exceptions for flagging up that situation. Right, um, a concept that came between C and the object approach was that of packages, which is something that is similar to the um, idea of having .h, .c or .cp um, files. And you separate off the interface, how something is used, from its implementation. The interface defines the, the services. I can write my program. The compiler takes the interface section, which is like the .h, the header file, and produces the, the code. Just in case you were confused there, an object file, a dot .obj, is nothing to do with object-oriented programming. The implementation of the data type is also taken by the compiler, also compiled to an object file, and the linker takes the various object files and links them together. And you do sort of see that in C or C++ with the .h and the .c files. In languages that properly support packages, it's much more rigorously enforced. And that's a strong separation behind the interface and the implementation. The idea being that you can change the implementation, recompile... Why am I pointing at this? Change the implementation, recompile it to produce an object file, and relink with existing programs without having to change the existing programs at all. They don't need to be recompiled because the interface has stayed the same. Right, moving off. What I hope I've presented there is an introduction to the abstract data type concept that is one motivation for having classes and objects. Classes provide a good way 
of implementing abstract data types. And abstract data types have advantages for the software developer. I want to move to an alternative discussion of why the OO approach might be good. This time I'm talking about approaches to design and a number of these you should already have come across. <coughs> Divide and conquer is a general problem solving technique. I take a big problem, I break it down into some smaller ones, I tackle each of those smaller problems, solve them, and then combine the results to get a solution to the original problem. Um, an example of that might be if I've got a, a graphics program that I want to write, I don't just start with a raw C++ C++ code, I think about breaking it down, writing a library that I can use, and then using that library. That's one example of divide and conquer. Lots more. Cohesion and coupling. How many of you have been scarred by <coughs> concepts of cohesion and coupling? Can you just, can I just see how, how many of you are damaged? Right. Okay, fine. Um, cohesion and coupling are important. Cohesion is when you've broken something down into a number of different areas, a highly cohesive component is meaningful on its own. So rather than breaking things up at random, you've broken it down into things that mean something so that they can be reused elsewhere. Coupling is to do with the links between the, the components. And we want to minimize the amount of linking between the components because it makes the full system simpler if there are very well-defined links between the various components. No doubt at some point we will come back and talk about cohesion and coupling again. For those of you who um, come across it last year and, and hope to forget it, it is important. It's one way of assessing the quality of how you've broken things down. Right. Stepwise refinement, again, it's an example of a divide-and-conquer approach, but it's um, a little bit more specific. It's about building up a solution in a series of stages. Functional decomposition, again, that is another example of divide-and-conquer. It gives you a way of breaking things down. You break things down by the functions that are involved. So if you were developing a word processor, you'd think to yourself, what functions are required? Well, we need to be able to edit files. We need to be able to load and save files. We need to be able to check spelling. Okay, that's three functions that we want the system to perform. 
So as a way of breaking the thing down, we say, right, I'm going to have three subsystems. One to do with editing, one to do with loading and saving, one to do with spelling. And then you look at, say, the loading and saving thing. And you say, well, I can break that down a bit further into two more functions, loading and saving. And then you work on those. So you're breaking a big problem down by looking at the different functions. You are using divide and conquer, but this approach gives you a way of breaking things down. Look at the functions that your system is supposed to be providing and have a separate module to provide each of those functions. That was top down. I started off with my word processor and said at the next level I want these three things. And then I focused in on one of those and broke it down further. And maybe if I was, say, loading a file, I'd break that down into three steps as well. Opening the file, getting the data, closing the file. So I'm working from a high level down and getting to, to lower levels. Bottom-up design gets less sort of popular support when you're taught to program. You're taught to program usually in a, a top-down way. But bottom-up design is also used. Here you look at a problem domain and you say, if I'm going to solve problems here, I'm going to need to be able to do these sorts of things. You implement those sorts of things and you use them to solve your problem. And the classic example would be if you're writing a graphics application. If you've got a graphics problem to solve, the first thing you do is say, right, I need a library that will allow me to do these various things. And if you're lucky, a library already exists. And you, you find it, you link it in, and then you start to use that. If not, you have to write it for yourself. Um, when I started programming, I think the first three programs that I had to, to write, the first things that I had to do was to write a library that allowed me to read in integers and convert from strings into integers. And once I'd got that, I could move on to, to things that were a bit more, more interesting. So bottom-up design, you look at the, the problem domain, you identify things that are going to be useful, you implement them first, and then you use them. Data-driven design tends not to get mentioned now. Any of you come across something called Jackson Structured Programming? And I'm not just talking about the Jackson diagrams, but the actual technique. There is a method for writing programs which uses those diagrams. That's a series of steps. So how many of you have come across JSP diagrams? Okay, a number of you. How many of you have come across the, the JSP method? Okay, fewer. It is a very interesting method, and when it works, it's quite nice. And the essence behind it is to say, look at the problem domain, look at the data that you're going to have to use to represent things in that domain, and structure your programs in the same way that the data 
is structured. Example of that, if you are writing things to manipulate books, some sort of text processing application, a book has a typical structure. It might have a front page, um, contents, a number of chapters, and then perhaps an index at the end. If you are writing something to process books, then you might expect that your program structure is something like process the front page, process the contents, some sort of loop to process the chapters, and then something to process the index at the end. And each index at the end will consist of a number of entries. So you'd expect that processing to have a loop which handles that. And that's quite an interesting way of developing a program structure. Look at the data you're going to be manipulating and design your program to mirror the data structure. So, what are we talking about now? Late 70s, I guess. Um, there's these sorts of design approaches. And the supporters of object-oriented programming, which had been around for quite a while, OO is not new. Um, Simula 67, when I was running around in short trousers, um, was the first object-oriented programming language, one of the main ones, which had a lot of the concepts that we'll be looking at. And the object-oriented approach is to combine the data and the program together using a concept called encapsulation. And that allows you to have data-driven design where the structure of the program once again matches up with the structure of the real world. So in the real world, if we're dealing with people, we have an object in the program that represents a person. Right, so what I have done is I've talked about general goals that software developers try to achieve. I have then done one strand leading to the object-oriented idea by looking at the development of the abstract data type. I've then done a second strand by looking at design approaches. Most design approaches tend to be based around functions. Some design approaches are based around data. The object-oriented approach tries to combine the two and allow you to develop systems that match the real world. The structure of the program corresponds to the structure of the real world and there are advantages to that. So next week we will be starting off by looking at the object-oriented concepts and tying them back to what we have seen.